Section 11 of Modern Magic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Modern Magic by Maximilian Shell de Vere. Divination. There shall not be found among you any one that useth divination. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. The usual activity of our mind is limited to the perception of the world around us, and its life, as far as the power of our senses reaches. It must, therefore, necessarily be confined within the limits of space and time. There are, however, specially favored men among us who profess an additional power, or even ordinary men may be thus endowed under peculiar circumstances, as when they are under the influence of nervous affections, trances, or even merely an unusual state of excitement. Then they are no longer subject to the usual laws of distance in space or remoteness in time. They perceive as immediately present what lies beyond the reach of others. And the magic power by which this is accomplished is called divination. This vision is never quite clear, nor always complete or correct, for even such exceptional powers are in all cases more or less subject to the imperfections of our nature. Habitual notions an ill-executed imagination, and often a disordered state of the system, all interfere with its perfect success. These imperfections, moreover, not only affect the value of such magic perceptions, but obscure the genuine features by a number of false statements and of erroneous impressions, which quite legitimately excite a strong prejudice against the whole subject. Hence especially the rigor of the Church against divination in every form— it has ever ascribed the errors mixed up with the true parts of such revelations to the direct influence of the evil one. The difficulty, however, arises that such magic powers have nothing at all to do with the question of morality. The saint and the criminal may possess them alike, since they are elements of our common nature, hidden in the vast majority of cases, and coming into view and into life only in rare exceptional instances divination as freed from the ordinary limits of our perception appears either as clairvoyance when things are seen which are beyond the range of natural vision or as prophecy when the boundary lines of time are overstepped the latter appears again in its weakest form as a mere anticipation of things to come or rises to perfection in the actual foretelling of future events it is sad enough to learn from the experience of all nations that occurrences thus foreseen are almost invariably great misfortunes. Yet our surprise will cease if we remember that the tragic in life exercises by far the greatest influence on our mind and excites it far beyond all other events. Nor must we overlook the marvelous unanimity with which such magic powers are admitted to exist in man by all nations on earth. The explanation also is invariably the same, namely, that man possessed originally the command over space and time, as well as God himself, but that when sin came into the world and affected his earth-born body, this power was lost, and preserved only to appear in exceptional and invariably most painful cases. So thought the ancients, even long before Revelation had spoken. They believed that man had had a previous godlike existence before appearing on earth, where he was condemned to expiate the sins of his former life, while his immortal and divine soul was chained to a perishing earthly body. Plato, Plutarch, and Pythagoras, Cicero, in his book, De Divinatione, and even Porphyrius, all admit without hesitation the power of divination, and speak of its special vigor in the moments preceding death. Melanchthon ascribed warning dreams to the prophetic power of the human soul. Briere de Boismont also is forced to admit that not all cases of clairvoyance and prophesying are the results of hallucination by diseased persons. He speaks, on the contrary, and in spite of his bitter skepticism, of instances in which the increased powers of perception are the effect of, quote, supernatural intuition, end quote. One of the most prolific sources of error in divination has ever been the variety of means employed for the purpose of causing the preparatory state of trance. It is well known in our day that the mind may be most strangely affected by innumerable agencies which are apparently purely mechanical, 
and often utterly absurd. Such are an intent gazing at highly polished surfaces of metal, or into the bright inside of a gold cup, at the shining sides of a crystal, or the varying hues of a glass globe, now vessels filled with pure water, and now ink poured into the hand of a child, answer the same purpose. Fortune-telling from the lines of the hand, or the chance combinations of playing cards, are, in this aspect, on a par with the prophecies of astrologers drawn from the constellations in the heavens. It need hardly be added that this almost infinite variety of more or less absurd measures has nothing at all to do with the awakening of magic power, and continues in use only from the prestige which some of the means, like the cup of Joseph and the mirror of Varro, derive from their antiquity. Their sole purpose is uniformly to withdraw the seer's attention from all outward objects, and to make him, by steadily gazing at one and the same object, concentrate his thoughts and feelings exclusively upon his own self. Experience has taught that such efforts, long continued, result finally in utter loss of feeling, in unconsciousness, and frequently even in catalepsy. It is generally only under such peculiarly painful circumstances that the unusual powers of our being can become visible and begin to operate. While these results may be obtained, as recent experiments have proved, even by mere continued squinting, barbarous nations employ the most violent means for the same purpose. The whirling of dervishes, the drumming and dancing of northern shamans, the deafening music of the moors, are all means of the same kind to excite the rude and fierce nature of savages to a state of excessive excitement. In all cases, however, we must notice the comparative sterility of such divination, and the penalty which has to be paid for most meagre results by injuries inflicted upon the body and by troubles caused in the mind, which, if they do not become fatal to life, are invariably so to happiness and peace. That the sad privilege may have to be paid for with life itself, we learn already from Plutarch's account of a priestess who became so furious while prophesying that not only the strangers, but the priests themselves fled in dismay, while she herself expired a few hours later. The state in which all forms of divination are most apt to show themselves is by theologians called ecstasis, when it is caused by means specially employed for the purpose and appears as literally being beside oneself by its side they speak of raptus when the abnormal state suddenly begins during an act of ordinary life such as walking working or even praying the distinction is of no value as to the nature of the magic powers themselves which are in all cases the same it refers exclusively to the outer form one of the simplest methods is the diesel walking of the scotch highlanders the seer walks rapidly three times with the sun around the person whose future is to be foretold and thus produces a trance in which his magic powers become available walter scott's chronicles of the canongate gives a full account of this ceremony robin oig's aunt performs the ceremony and then warns him in great terror that she has seen a bloody dagger in his hand stained with english blood and beseeches him to stay at home. He disregards the omen, kills the same night an Englishman, a cattle dealer, and pays for the crime with his life. In the East, on the contrary, the usual form is to employ a young boy, taken at haphazard from the street, and to force him to gaze intently at India ink poured into the hollow of the hand, at molten lead, wax poured into cold water, the patent of a priest, or a shining sword with which several men have been killed. General readers will recall the famous boy of Cairo, who saw thus, in the dark, glittering surface of ink, the great Nelson, curiously enough, as in a mirror, for he reported the image to be without the left arm, and to wear the left sleeve across the breast, while the great admiral had lost his right arm, and wore the right sleeve suspended. Burke, in his amusing Anecdotes of the Aristocracy, relates how the magician, Magruban, in Alexandria, appeared with a ten-year-old Coptic boy before the officers of Her Majesty's ship Vanguard. After burning much incense and uttering many unintelligible formulas, he rolled a paper in the shape of a cornucopia, filled it with ink, and bade the boy tell him what he saw. As usual, he first saw a broom sweeping, and was thoroughly frightened. 
when a young midshipman asked him to inquire what would be his fate, he described instantly a sailor with gold on the shoulders, fighting against Indians till he fell dead. Then came friends and buried him under a tree on a hill. The midshipman, Croker, returned home, abandoned the sea, and became a landowner in one of the Midland counties of England, where he often laughed at the absurd prediction. Long years afterwards, however, when there was a sudden want of seamen, he was recalled into service and sent on a long cruise. He rose to become a captain, and while in command of a frigate, fell upon the island of Tongatabu in a skirmish with the natives, whereupon he was interred there under a lofty palm-tree, which stood on a commanding eminence. The same author repeats the well-known story of Lady Eleanor Campbell, which is in substance as follows. Poor Lady Primrose, a daughter of the second Earl of Loudon, had for years endured the saddest lot that can befall a noble woman. She had been bound by marriage to a husband whose dissolute habits and untamable passions inspired her with fear, while his short love for her had long since turned into bitter hatred. At last he formed the resolution to rid himself forever of his wife, whose very piety and gentleness were standing reproof to his villainy. By a rare piece of good luck, she was awake when he came from his deep potations, a bare sword in his hand, and, ready to kill her, she saw him in the mirror before which she happened to be sitting, and escaped by jumping from a window and hastening to her husband's own mother. After this attempt at her life, he disappeared, no one knew whither, but the poor lady, forsaken and yet not a widow, could not prevent her thoughts from dwelling, by day and by night, year after year, upon the image of her unfortunate husband, and his probable fate in foreign lands. It was, therefore, not without a pardonable interest that she heard, one winter, people talk of a foreigner who had suddenly appeared in Canongate, and created a great sensation throughout Edinburgh by his success in showing to inquiring visitors what their absent friends were doing. Her intense anxiety about her husband, and her natural desire to ascertain whether she was still a wife, or already a widow, combined to tempt her to call on the magician. She went, therefore, with a friend, both disguised in the tartans and plaids of their maids. Before they reached the obscure alley to which they had been directed, they lost their way, and were standing helpless, exposed to the cold stormy weather, when suddenly a deep voice said to them, "'You are mistaken, ladies. This is not your way.' "'How so?' asked Lady Primrose, addressing a tall, gentlemanly-looking man, with a stern face of deep olive colour, in which a pair of black eyes shone like stars, and dressed in an elegant but foreign-looking costume. The answer came promptly, "'You are mistaken in your way, because it lies yonder, and in your disguise, because it does not conceal you from him who can lift the veil of the future.' Then followed a short conversation, in which the stranger made himself known as the magician whom they were about to visit, and, by some words whispered into the lady's ear, as a man who not only recognized her as Lady Primrose, but who also was perfectly well acquainted with all the intimate details of her history. Amazed, and not a little frightened, the two ladies accepted his courteous invitation to follow him, entered the house, and were shown into a simply furnished room where the stranger begged them to wait for him, till all was ready for the ceremony by which alone he could satisfy their curiosity. After a short pause he reappeared in the traditional costume of a magician, a long tunic of black velvet which left his breast, arms, and hands free, and requested Lady Primrose to follow him into the adjoining room. After some little hesitation, she left her companion and entered the room, which was perfectly plain, offering nothing to attract the eye save the dark curtains before the windows, an old-fashioned armchair, and a kind of altar of black marble over which a large and beautiful mirror was suspended. Before the latter stood a small oven, in which some unknown substance burnt with a blue light, which alone feebly lighted up the room. The visitor was requested to sit down, to invoke help from above, and to abstain from uttering a sound, if she valued her life, and that of the magician. After some simple but apparently most important ceremonies, the magician threw a pinch of red powder upon the flame, which instantly changed into bright crimson while a few plaintive sounds were heard, and red clouds seemed to rise before the mirror, broken at short intervals by vivid flashes of lightning. As the mist dispersed, the glass exhibited, to the lady's astonished eye, the interior of a church, first in vague outlines, undulating as passing clouds seemed to set them in motion, but soon distinctly and clear in the minutest details. 
then a priest appeared with his acolytes at the altar and a wedding party was seen standing before him among whom lady primrose soon recognized her faithless husband before she could recover from her painful surprise she saw a stranger hastily entering the church wrapped in his cloak at the moment when the priest who had been performing the usual ceremony was about to join the hands of the couple before him the unknown dropped his cloak and rushed forward lady primrose saw it was her own brother who drew his sword and attacked her husband suddenly a thrust was made by the latter which threatened to be fatal and the poor lady cried out great god they will kill my brother she had no sooner uttered these words than the whole scene in the mirror became dim and blurred the clouds rose again and formed dense masses and soon the glass resumed its ordinary brightness and the flame its faint blue colour the magician apparently much excited informed the lady that all was over and that they had escaped a most fearful danger incurred by her imprudence in speaking he would accept no reward stating that he had merely wished to oblige her but would not have dared to do so much if he had foreseen the peril to which they had both been exposed lady primrose accompanied by her friend reached home in a state of extreme excitement but immediately wrote down the hour and the day of her strange adventure with a full account of all she had seen in the magic mirror the paper thus drawn up she sealed in the presence of her companion and hid it in a secret drawer not long afterwards her brother returned from the continent but for some time refused to speak at all of her husband it was only after being long and urgently pressed by the poor lady that he consented to tell her how he had heard of lord primrose's intention to marry a very wealthy lady in amsterdam how by mere chance he had entered the church where the marriage ceremony was to be performed and how he had come out just in time to prevent his brother-in-law from committing bigamy they had fought for a few minutes without doing each other any injury and after being separated he had remained while lord primrose had disappeared no one knew whither upon comparing dates and circumstances it appeared that the mirror had presented the scene faithfully in all its details but the ceremony had taken place in the morning the visit to the magician at night so that the latter had after all only revealed an event already completed there remains however the difficulty of accounting for the means by which in those days about seventeen hundred an event in amsterdam could possibly have been known in edinburgh the night of the same day on which it occurred in france under louis the fourteenth a glass of water was most frequently used as a mirror in which to read the future the duke of saint-simon reports that the duke of orleans was thus informed that he would one day become regent of france the abbey chausset mentions a remarkable occurrence which took place at the house of the countess of Sausson, a niece of the great cardinal mazarin her husband was lying sick in the province of champagne and she was anxious to know whether she ought to undertake the long and perilous journey to him or not in this dilemma a friend offered to send for a diviner who should tell her the issue of her husband's illness he brought her a little girl five years old who in the presence of a number of distinguished persons of both sexes began under the nobleman's direction to tell what she saw in a glass of water when she began by saying that the water looked as if it were troubled the poor lady was so frightened that her friend suggested he would ask the spirit to show the child not her husband himself but a white horse if the count was dead and a tiger if he was alive when he asked the girl what she saw now ah she cried out at once what a pretty white horse the company however refused to be content with one trial five times in succession the test was altered and in such a manner that the little child could not possibly be aware of the choice but in each case the answer was unfavourable to the absent count it appeared afterwards that he had really died a day or two before the consultation one of the most striking cases of such exceptional endowment was a frenchman cahagnet who in his work lumiere des morts claimed to see remote objects and persons he used to make a mental effort upon which his eyes became fixed and he saw objects at a great distance reading the title and discerning the precise shape of books in public libraries or watching absent friends engaged in unusual occupations this state of clairvoyance however never lasted more than sixty seconds nor could he ever see the same object twice limitations of his endowment which secured for him greater credit than he would have otherwise possessed occasionally he would assist the effort he had to make by fixedly gazing at some shining object such as a small flaw in a mirror or a glass 
another restraint under which he labored and which yet increased the faith of others consisted in this that such sights as presented themselves spontaneously to him proved invariably to be true while the visions which he purposely evoked were not unfrequently unfounded in fact among recent magicians of this class a parisian edmund is perhaps the most generally known he is a man without education who leads a life of asceticism and is said to equal the famous lenormand in his ability to guess the future by gazing intently at certain cards the latter though not free from the charge of charlatanism possessed undoubtedly the most extraordinary talent of divining the thoughts of those who came to consult her and an almost marvellous tact in connecting the knowledge thus obtained with the events of the day she began her career already as a young girl at a convent school where her playmates asked her laughingly who would be the next abbess and she mentioned an entirely unknown lady from picardy as the one that would be appointed by the king contrary to all expectations the favorite candidates were put aside and the unknown lady appointed although eighteen months elapsed before her prophecy was fulfilled as early as seventeen eighty nine she predicted the overthrow of the french government and during the revolution her reputation was such that the first men of the land came to consult her the unfortunate princess lamballe and marabou madame de stael and the king himself all appeared in her stately apartments her efforts to save the queen to whose prison she managed to obtain access were unsuccessful but when her aristocratic connections caused her to be imprisoned herself even the noble and virtuous madame tallien sought her society the new dynasty whose members were almost without exception more or less superstitious as it is the nature of all corsicans consulted her frequently the great napoleon came to her in seventeen ninety three when he was disgusted with france and on the point of leaving the country he sent for her a second time in eighteen o one to confer with her at malmaison and the fair josephine actually conceived for her a deep and lasting attachment afterwards however she became as obnoxious to the emperor as his inveterate enemy madame de stal she was repeatedly sent to prison because she predicted failures as in the case of the projected invasion of england or because she revealed the secret plans of napoleon the emperor alexander of russia also consulted her in eighteen eighteen and of the prussian king frederick william the third it is at least reported that he visited her incognito after the year eighteen thirty she appeared but rarely in her character as a diviner she had become old and rich and did not perhaps wish to risk her world-wide reputation by too numerous revelations she maintained however for the rest of her life the most intimate relations with many eminent men in france and when she died in eighteen forty three seventy-one years old leaving to her nephew a very large fortune her gorgeous funeral was attended by a host of distinguished personages including even men of such character as guizot and yet she also had not disdained to use the most absurd and apparently childish means in order to produce the state of ecstasy in which she alone could divine playing cards fancifully arranged the white of an egg the sediment of coffee or the lines in the hand of her visitors at the same time however she used the information which she casually picked up or purposely obtained from her great friends with infinite cunning and matchless tact so that the better informed often asked her laughingly if her familiar spirit ariel was not also known as talleyrand david or geoffroy the charlatanism which often and most justly rendered her proceedings suspicious to sober men was in fact part of her system she knew perfectly well the old doctrine mundus vultisipi and did not hesitate to flatter the fondness of all frenchmen for a theatrical mise en scene dryden's famous horoscope of his younger son charles was probably nothing more than one of those rare but striking coincidences of which the laws of probability give us the exact value he loved the study of astrology and never omitted to calculate the nativity of his children as soon as they were born in the case of charles he discovered that great dangers would threaten him in his eighth twenty-third and thirty-third or forty-third year and sure enough those years produced some serious troubles on his eighth birthday he was buried under a falling wall on the twenty-third he fell in rome from an old tower and on his thirty-third he was drowned in the thames divination by means of bones generally the shoulder-bones of rams 
is quite common among the mongols and tangus and the custom seems to have remained unchanged through centuries for purchase already quotes from the journal of the minorite monk Gualumé de rubricus written in twelve fifty five a description of the manner in which the great khan of mongolia tried to ascertain the result of any great enterprise which he might contemplate three shoulder-bones of rams were brought to him which he held for some time in his hands while deeply meditating on the subject then he threw them into the fire after they were burnt black they were again laid before him and examined if they had cracked lengthways the omen was favorable if crossways the enterprise was abandoned almost identically the same process is described by the great traveller pallas who witnessed it repeatedly and obtained very startling communications from the mongol priests but here also violent dancing narcotic perfumes and wild cries had to aid in producing a trance the laplanders have perhaps the most striking magic powers which seem to be above suspicion at least we are assured by every traveller who has spent some time among them from caspar pousser down to the tourists of our days that they not only see persons at the greatest distance but furnish minute details as to their occupation or surroundings after having invoked the aid of his gods the magician falls down like a dead man and remains in a state of trance for twenty-four hours during which foreigners are always warned to have him carefully guarded quote, lest the demons should carry him off end quote. during this time the seer maintains that his quote, soul opens the gates of the body end quote, and moves freely wherever it chooses to go when he returns to consciousness he describes accurately and minutely the persons about whom he has promised to give information in the east indies it is well known clairvoyance has existed from time immemorial and the kind of trance which consists in utter oblivion of actual life and perfect abstraction of thought from this world is there carried out to perfection the faithful believer sits or lies down in any position he may happen to prefer for the moment fixes his eyes intently upon the point of his nose mutters the word one and finally beholds god with an inner sense in the form of a white brilliant light of ineffable splendor some of these ascetics pass from a simple trance to a state of catalepsy in which their bodies become insensible to pain but this kind of ecstasis is not accompanied by divination another branch of divination conquers the difficulty which distance in space opposes to our ordinary perceptions in all such cases it is of course not our hearing or smelling which suddenly becomes miraculously powerful but another magic power which causes impressions on the mind like those produced by the eye and the ear the oldest well-authenticated instance of magic hearing is probably that of horcanus the high priest of the jews who while burning incense in the temple heard a voice saying now antiochus has been slain by thy sons the news was immediately proclaimed to the people and some time afterward messengers came announcing that antiochus had thus perished as he approached samaria which he had desired to relieve from the besieging army under the sons of hyrcanus a still more striking instance is also reported by a trustworthy author a man in alexandria egypt saw as he returned home about midnight the statues before the great temple moved aside from their seats and heard them call out to him that the emperor had been slain by phocus though thoroughly frightened he hastened to the authorities reporting his adventure he was carried before peter the viceroy of egypt and ordered to keep silence nine days later however the official news came that the emperor had been murdered it is evident that the knowledge of the event came to him in some mysterious way and for an unknown purpose but that what he saw and heard was purely the work of his imagination which became the vehicle of the revelation there exists a long almost unbroken series of similar phenomena through the entire course of modern history of which but a few can here find space richelieu tells us in his memoirs that the prevost desmarachaux of the city of pithiviers was one night engaged in playing cards in his house when he suddenly hesitated fell into a deep musing and then turning to his companions said solemnly the king has just been murdered these words made a deep impression upon all the members of the assembly which afterward changed into genuine terror when it became known that on the same evening at the same hour of four o'clock p m henry the fourth had really been murdered nor was this a solitary case for on the same day a girl of fourteen 
living near the city of orleans had asked her father simone what a king was upon his replying that it was the man who commanded all frenchmen she had exclaimed great god i have this moment heard somebody tell me that he was murdered it seems that the minds of men were just then everywhere deeply interested in the fate of the king and hence their readiness to anticipate an event which was no doubt very generally apprehended even from abroad numerous letters had been received announcing his death beforehand in the two cases mentioned this excitement had risen to divination the author of the famous zober bibliotheque horst mentions that his father a well-known missionary was once travelling in the company with the well-known hebrew scholar wiedemann while a third companion ordinarily engaged with them in converting jews was out at sea it was a fine bright day no rain or wind visible even at a distance wiedemann had walked for some time in deep silence apparently engaged in praying when suddenly he stopped and said monsieur horst take your diary and write down that our companion is at this moment exposed to great peril by water the storm will last until night and the danger will be fearful but the lord will mercifully preserve him and the vessel and no lives will be lost write it down carefully so that when our friend returns we may jointly thank god for his great mercy the missionary did so and when the three friends were united once more their diaries were compared and it appeared that the statement had been exact in all its details clairvoyance as far as it implies the seeing of persons or the witnessing of events at a great distance is counted among the most frequent gifts of early saints and st augustine mentions a number of remarkable cases not only absent friends and their fate were thus beheld by privileged christians but even the souls of departing saints were seen as they were borne to heaven by angelic hosts the same exceptional gifts were apparently granted to the early jesuit fathers thus xavier once saw distinctly a whole naval expedition sailing against the pirates of malacca and defeating them in a great naval battle he had himself caused the fleet to be sent from sumatra and remained during the whole time in a trance he had fallen down unconscious at the foot of the altar where he had been fervently praying for a long time and during his unconsciousness he saw not only a general image of what was occurring at a distance of two hundred portuguese leagues but every detail so that upon recovering from the trance he could announce to his brethren the good news of a great victory of the loss of only three lives and of the very day and hour on which the official report would be received queen margaret not always reliable still seems to state well-known facts only when she tells us in her famous memoirs the visions of her mother the great queen catherine de medici the latter was lying dangerously ill at metz when king charles a sister and another brother of margaret of valois the duke of lorraine and a number of eminent persons of both sexes were assembled around what was believed to be her deathbed. she was delirious and suddenly cried out just see how they run my son is victorious great god raise him up he has fallen do you see the prince of conde there he is dead everybody thought she was delirious but on the next evening a messenger came bringing the news of the battle of jarnac and as he mentioned the main events she calmly turned to her children saying ah i knew i saw it all yesterday it seems as if in times of great and general expectation when bloody battles are fought and the destiny of empires hangs in the scales the minds of the masses become so painfully excited that the most sensitive among them fall into a kind of trance and then perceive by magic powers of divination what is taking place at great distances this over-excitement is moreover not unknown to men of the highest character and the greatest erudition calvin whose stern clear-sighted judgment abhorred all superstition nevertheless once saw a battle between catholics and protestants with all its details swedenborg whose religious enthusiasm never interfered with his scrupulous candor saw more than once with his mind's eye events occurring at a distance of hundreds of miles his vision of the great fire at stockholm is too well authenticated to admit of doubt not less reliable are the accounts of another vision he had at amsterdam in the presence of a large company while engaged in animated conversation he suddenly changed countenance and became silent the persons near him saw that he was under the influence of some strong impression after a few moments he seemed to recover and overwhelmed with questions 
he at last reluctantly said, In this hour, the Emperor Peter the Fourth of Russia has suffered death in his prison. It was ascertained afterwards that the unfortunate sovereign had died on that day and in the manner indicated. Among modern seers, the most remarkable was probably the well-known poet Émile Deschamps, who published in 1838 interesting accounts of his own experiences. When he was only eight years old, it was decided that he should leave Paris and be sent to Orleans. This troubled him sorely, and in his great grief he found some little comfort in setting his lively fancy to work and to imagine what the new city would be like. When he reached Orleans, he was extremely surprised to recognize the streets, the shops, and even the names on the signboards. Everything was exactly as he had seen it in his daydreams. While he was yet there, he saw his mother, whom he had left in Paris, in a dream, rising gently heavenwards with a palm branch in her hand, and heard her voice, very faint but silvery, call to him, Emile, Emile, my son. She had died in the same night, uttering these words with her departing breath. Later in life he often heard strange but enchanting music while in a state of partial ecstasis. He saw distant events, and, among others, distinctly described a barricade, the defenders of the adjoining house, and certain events connected with the fight at that spot, as they happened in Paris on the same day. A still higher power of divination enables men to read, in the faces and form of others, even of totally unknown persons, not only the leading traits of their character, but even the nature of their former lives. There can be no doubt that every important event in our life leaves a more or less perceptible trace behind, which the acute and experienced observer may learn to read with tolerable distinctness and accuracy. It is well known how the study of the human face enables us thus to discern one secret after another, and how really great men have possessed the power to judge of the capacity of generals or statesmen to serve them by natural instinct and without any effort. We say of specially endowed men of this class that they can read the souls of men, and what is most interesting is the well-established fact that the purer the mind and the freer from selfishness and conceit, the greater this power to feel, as it were, the character of others. Hence the superiority of women in this respect, hence especially the unfailing instinct of children, which enables them instantly to distinguish affected love from real love and makes them shrink often painfully from contact with evil men. When this power reaches in older men a high degree of perfection, it enters within the limits of magic, and in this form was well known to the ancients. The Neoplatonic Platonus is reported by Porphyrus to have been almost marvelously endowed with such divining powers. He revealed to his pupils the past and the future events of their lives alike and once charged the author himself with cherishing thoughts of suicide, when no one else suspected such a purpose. In like manner, we are told, Ancus Nevius, the famous augur of the first Tarquins, could read all he desired to know in the faces of others. The saints of the church were naturally as richly endowed, and from Filippo Neri to Xavier, nearly all possessed this peculiar gift of divination. But other men also, and by no means always those most abundantly endowed with mental superiority, have frequently a peculiar talent of this kind. Thus the well-known writer Choka, the author of the admirable work Hours of Devotion, gives in his autobiographical work Steptichow a full account of his peculiar gifts as a seer, which contains the following principal facts. At the moment when an utter stranger was first introduced to him, he saw a picture of his whole previous life rising gradually before his mind's eye resembling somewhat a long dream, but clear and closely connected. During this time he would, contrary to his general custom, lose sight of the visitor's face and no longer hear his voice. He used to treat these involuntary revelations at first as mere idle fancies, till one day he was led by a kind of supportive impulse to tell his family the secret history of a seamstress who had just left the room and whom he had never seen before. It was soon ascertained that all he had stated was perfectly true, though known only to a very few persons. From that time he treated these visions more seriously, taking pains to repeat them in a number of cases to the persons whom they concerned, and to his own great amazement they turned out in every case to be perfectly accurate. The author adds one case of peculiarly striking nature. One day, he says, I reached the town of Waldshut, 
accompanied by two young foresters, who are still alive. It was dusk, and, tired by our walk, we entered an inn called the Grapevine. We took our supper at the public table, in company with numerous guests, who happened to be laughing at the oddities and the simplicity of the Swiss, their faith in Mesmer, in Lavater's system of the physiognomy, and so forth. One of my companions, hurt in his national pride, asked me to make a reply, especially with regard to a young man sitting opposite to us, whose pretentious airs and merciless laughter had been peculiarly offensive. It so happened that, a few moments before, the main events in the life of this person had passed before my mind's eye. I turned to him and asked him if he would answer me candidly upon being told the most secret parts of his life by a man who was so complete a stranger to him as I was. That, I added, would certainly go even beyond Lavater's power to read faces. He promised to confess it openly, if I stated facts. Thereupon I related all I had seen in my mind, and informed thus the whole company at table of the young man's history, the events of his life at school, his petty sins, and at last a robbery which he had committed by pilfering his employer's strong-box. I described the empty room with its whitewashed walls and brown door, near which, on the right hand, a small black money-box had been standing on a table, and other details. As long as I spoke there reigned a death-like silence in the room, which was only interrupted by my asking the young man, from time to time, if all I said was not true. He admitted everything, although evidently in a state of utter consternation, and at last, deeply touched by his candor, I offered him my hand across the table and closed my recital. This popular writer, a man of unblemished character, who died in 1850, regretted by a whole nation, makes this account of his own prophetic power still more interesting by adding that he met at least once in his life another man similarly endowed. I once encountered, he says, while traveling with two of my sons, an old Tyrolese, a peddler of oranges and lemons, in a small inn half concealed in one of the narrow passes of the Jura Mountains. He fixed his eyes for some time upon my face, and then entered into conversation with me, stating that he knew me, although I did not know him, and then began, to the intense delight of the peasants who sat around us, and of my children, to chat about myself and my past life. How the old man had acquired his strange knowledge he could not explain to himself or to others, but he evidently valued it highly, while my sons were not a little astonished to discover that other men possessed the same gift which they had known only to exist in their father. It must not be forgotten that the human eye has, beyond question, often a power which far transcends the ordinary purposes of sight, and approaches the boundaries of magic. There is probably no one who cannot recall scenes in which the soothing and cheering expression of gentle eyes has acted like a healing balm on wounded hearts, or others, in which glances of fury and hatred have caused genuine terror and frightened the conscience. History records a number of instances, from the glance of the Saviour, which made Peter go out and weep bitterly, to the piercing eye of a well-known English judge, which made criminals of every rank in society feel as if their very hearts lay open to the divining eye of a master. This peculiar and almost irresistible power of the eye has not inaptly been traced back to the gorgon head of antiquity, a frightful image from Hades with a dreadful glance of the eye, as is said by Homer. This same fearful expression, chilling the blood and almost arresting the beating of the heart, is frequently mentioned in modern accounts of visions. Thus, the demon of Tedworth, recorded by Glanville, consisted of the vague outlines of a human face, in which only two bright, piercing eyes could be distinguished. In other cases, a faint vapor, barely recalling a human shape, arises before the beholder, and above it are seen the same terrible eyes, sent from the palace of Ace by fearful Persephonia. Magic divination in point of time includes the class of generally very vague and indefinite perceptions, which we call presentiments. These are, unfortunately, so universally mixed up with impressions produced after the occurrences, vaticanium post eventum, that their value as interesting phenomena of magic is seriously impaired. There remains, however, in a number of cases, enough that is free from all spurious admixture to admit of being examined seriously. The ancients not only believed in this kind of foresight, but ascribed it, with Pythagoras, to revelations made by friendly spirits. In Holy Writ, 
it arises almost invariably under direct inspiration from on high to genuine prophecy it reveals not only the fate of the seer but also that of others and even of whole nations the details vary of course according to the prevailing spirit of the times when narcissus was ruling over italy a young shepherd in the service of valerianus a lawyer was seized by the plague and fell into syncope he recovered for a time and then declared that he had been carried to heaven where he had heard the names of all who in his master's house should die of the plague adding that valerianus himself would escape after his death everything occurred as he had predicted an english minister mr dodd one night felt an irresistible impulse to visit a friend of his who lived at some distance he walked to his house found the family asleep but the father still awake and ready to open the door to his late visitor the latter very much embarrassed thought it best to state the matter candidly and confessed that he came for no ostensible purpose and really did not know himself what made him do so but god knew it was the answer for here is the rope with which i was just about to hang myself it may be well presumed that the reverend mr dodd had some apprehensions of the state of mind of his friend but that he should have felt prompted to call upon him just at that hour was certainly not a mere accident the family of the great goethe was singularly endowed with this power of presentiment the poet's grandfather predicted both the great conflagration and the unexpected arrival of the german emperor and a dream informed him beforehand of his election as alderman and then as mayor of his native city his mother's sister saw hidden things in her dreams his grandmother once entered her daughter's chamber long after midnight in a state of great and painful excitement she had heard in her own room a noise like the rustling of papers and then deep sighs and after a while a cold breath had struck her some time after this event a stranger was announced and when he appeared before her holding a crumbled paper in his hand she had barely strength enough to keep from fainting when she recovered her visitor stated that in the night of her vision a dear friend of hers lying on his deathbed had asked for paper in order to impart to her an important secret before he could write however he had been seized by the death struggle and after crumpling up the paper and uttering two deep sighs he had expired an indistinct scrawl was all that could be seen still the stranger had thought it best to bring the paper the secret concerned his now orphaned child a girl whom goethe's grandparents thereupon took home and cared for affectionately bourrienne tells us in his memoirs several instances of remarkable forebodings on the part of napoleon's first wife josephine her mind was probably by her education and the peculiar surroundings in which she passed her childhood predisposed to receive vivid impressions of this kind and to observe them with great care and deep interest thus she almost invariably predicted the failure of such of her husband's enterprises as proved unsuccessful after bonaparte had moved into the tuileries on the eighteenth brunere she saw while sitting in the room of poor marie antoinette the shadow of the unfortunate queen rise from the floor pass gently through the apartment and vanish through the window she fainted and from that day predicted her own sad fate on another occasion the spirit of her first husband beauharnais appeared before her with a gesture of solemn warning she immediately turned to napoleon exclaiming awake awake you are threatened by a great danger there seemed to be for some days no ground for apprehension but so strong were her fears that she secretly sent for the minister of police and entreated him to take special measures for the safety of the first consul at eight o'clock of the evening of the same day the latter left left the toileres on his way to the opera a terrible explosion was heard in the rue saint Nicaise, where conspirators attempted to blow up the dictator and he narrowly escaped with his life josephine at once hastened to his side and after having most tenderly cared for the wounded embraced napoleon in public with tears streaming down her face and implored him hereafter to listen more attentively to her warnings napoleon however though superstitious enough firmly to believe in what he called his star and even to see it shining in the heavens when no one else beheld it never would admit the value of his wife's forebodings presentiments of this kind are most frequently felt before death and it is now almost universally believed that the impending dissolution of the body relieves the spirit in many cases fully enough from its bondage to endow it with a clear and distinct anticipation of the coming event a large number of historical personages have thus been enabled to predict the day and many even the hour of their own death 
the Connetable de bourbon who was besieging rome addressed according to brantome on the day of the final assault his troops and told them he would certainly fall before the eternal city but without regret if they proved victorious henry the fourth of france felt his death coming according to the unanimous evidence of sully latois and bassompierre and said before he entered his coach on the fatal day my friend i would rather not go out to-day i know i shall meet with misfortune on the sixteenth of may eighteen thirteen four days before the battle of Watson, two of napoleon's great officers the duke of vincenza and marshal duroc were in attendance at dresden while the emperor was holding a protracted conference with the austrian ambassador the clock was striking midnight when suddenly duroc seized his companion by the arm and with frightfully altered features looking intently at him said in trembling tones my friend this lasts too long we shall all of us perish and he last of all a secret voice tells me that i shall never see france again it is well known that on the day of the battle a cannon-ball which had already killed general kirchner wounded duroc also mortally and when he lay on his deathbed he once more turned to the duke of vincenza and reminded him of the words he had spoken in dresden the trustworthy author of eight months in japan n ludorf tells us a remarkable instance of unconscious foreboding on the part of a common sailor the american bark greta was in eighteen fifty five chartered to carry a great number of russians who had been shipwrecked on board the frigate diana during an earthquake at samoda to the russian port of ayan a sailor on board was very ill and shortly before his death told his comrades that he would soon die but that he was rather glad of it as they would all be captured by the english with whom russia was then at war the report of his prediction reached the ship's captain but all the officers agreed that such an event was next to impossible a dense fog was making the ship perfectly invisible and no english fleet had as yet appeared in the sea of akosht where the russians had neither vessels nor forts to tempt the british the whole force of the english in those waters was at that moment engaged in blockading the russian fleet in the bay of castris in the gulf of tartary nevertheless it so chanced that a british steamer the corvette barracuda hove in sight on the first of august and captured the vessel making the russians prisoners of war end of section 11